Voices, a fresh perspective on voting, politics, and power. Hello, everybody. My name is Mariam Boat Lawi, and please join me tonight in welcoming Judge Nichols, where she will be sharing her story and talk about the importance of the courts. Judge Carolyn Nichols is a judge on the Pennsylvania Superior Court, and she is currently the only judge of color serving in the entire appellate court system in Pennsylvania. Before becoming a judge, Judge Nichols had 20 years of experience working as an attorney and as a public servant. In 2017, she was elected to the PA Superior Court, where she now hears criminal, civil, family, and orphans court cases. She attended Philadelphia Public Schools, received her BFA, JD, and Master's in Law degree in Trial Advocacy from Temple University, and also has an MBA from Eastern University. Judge Nichols is committed to diversity, inclusion, and equity, and has worked to transform the legal profession and the court system to make equal justice for all a reality. These are just a few of her incredibly impressive achievements, and we will send her full bio in the Zoom chat. Thank you so much. PA Youth Votes, and thank you, Angelique, for, for inviting me, and thank you, everyone else that, that's here uh, uh, listening. Uh, I'm Judge Carolyn Nichols. I currently sit on the Superior Court, which is an intermediate, meaning it's in the middle of the court system, right below the Supreme and right above the trial court. So we get all the appeals from the trial courts, civil, criminal, family, orphans court, uh, 60, about 60% of our cases are uh, uh, criminal uh, cases uh, that we get from all 67 counties around the state. We get between five and, and 8,000 cases a year. So we have the busiest docket actually in the United States and there are only 15 superior court judges and then four what's called senior uh, judges. Uh, on the Supreme, there's seven justices and the other intermediate appellate court is the Commonwealth Court. There are nine justices there. So it's not a lot of people uh, doing a lot of a lot of work. Uh, I, I come to uh, this career as a second generation lawyer. Uh, my dad uh, was a Tuskegee Airman. He came up through segregation. He was a trailblazing uh, assistant district attorney, one of the first group of black assistant district attorneys under Richardson Dilworth uh, in the 1950s, uh, mid 1950s. When he first came to the court, uh, when he first came to the uh, DA's office. Uh, black ADAs were not allowed to practice in the trial court. So they couldn't do felony trials in the court of common pleas simply because they were black and women ADAs couldn't either because uh, it was considered at that time too shocking for a woman to handle you know, a, felony, a felony case. So if you were black or a woman in the DA's office at that time, you could only handle cases in municipal court. Uh, and if anybody's from the counties, I don't know if this is a statewide organization, it would be the magisterial district court, simply because of the color of your skin uh, and, and for no other reason. Uh, so we see, even today, we're still struggling as Americans with systemic racism and implicit and explicit uh, bias. Uh, I was personally encouraged uh, when our new president, Joe Biden, uh, issued a slew of executive orders in which he said that Racial injustice and equity was at the center, 
the center of his governmental, of his agenda, the center of his agenda. And we know that racial injustice and equity should be at the center of our court's agenda, but unfortunately, in many cases, that is not the case. Uh, in our court system, uh, and this isn't just in Pennsylvania, but statewide, uh, there's an overrepresentation of, of Black people, particularly, and, and people of color. Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, the Black population is somewhere between 11 and 13%, yet we know from the latest numbers from the Department of Correction, approximately 46 to 50% of the incarcerated individuals are Black people and people of color, yet we're only 13, 11 to 13% of the population. So there's certainly a disparity and an overrepresentation of black people and people of color. In addition, in our court system, regardless of background, over 70% of all people that are justice involved or accused of crimes are represented by the public defender, 70%. And that's from people of all backgrounds. Uh, so we know that in our court system, uh, we have people coming into this system with, with all the socioeconomic challenges from poverty, housing, uh, food insecurity, all of those issues. Uh, 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 substance abuse disorders, uh, behavioral disorder issues, all of these issues, people are coming into the courts. So we need judges that are trauma informed. In other words, they're judges that are looking beyond simply, well, what did this person do or what happened, but what happened to you? And understanding uh, the symptoms that, that many times behavior is a symptom of something deeper uh, that as judges, we can't necessarily solve society's problems. We can't necessarily solve the problem but we have to have that insight. We have to be more probing as judges and treat everyone that comes into our courts, regardless of who they are, you know, race, nationality, religion, uh, uh, you know, whatever their background, LGBTQ, uh, how, how they identify, gender identity. Everyone deserves uh, from each and every judge in our system, no matter where they are in our system, uh, to be treated with humanity and respect. All people should be treated with humanity and respect regardless of what they're accused of, because charges are only charges unless they're proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so you're innocent until proven guilty. And many people coming in that are victimized by crime uh, are, are, are reacting to trauma. Uh, so as a judge, we have to treat everyone, understand that, have that understanding being trauma-informed uh, in our approach and treating everyone with humanity and respect, giving people the opportunity to be heard, uh, it, it means that our decisions as judges should be based on the rule of law and evidence in the courtroom and not uh, other uh, politicized issues. We, we've seen, I'm sure all of you saw the insurrection at our Capitol uh, and the attacks on our democracy and the attempts to politicize our courts. Politics has no place in our courts just as racial injustice has no place in our courts. So that's what we mean by the decision should be based on the rule of law and evidence and certainly not on implicit meaning Implicit bias means stereotyped assumptions that, that, uh, that many times people will have uh, almost unconscious stereotyped assumptions about certain groups of people. You know, we've heard about, we know about racism because of race and nationality. There's also Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. All of, all of these behaviors, you know, are based on, they can be implicit bias uh, where there are unconscious stereotypes or they can be explicit bias. In other words, overt racism, uh, which is a direct animus against a marginalized group. Uh, so implicit bias and explicit bias have no place in our courts, just as uh, politics has no place in our courts. Judges should be impartial and independent. 
independent of other branches of government, independent of political influence, and independent of certainly any kind of improper bias uh, or uh, implicit or explicit bias against any marginalized group. Uh, we've seen judges that they, they have a stereotype against somebody because they're, they're low income uh, and hold that against them in, in your sentencing. So any of these biases uh, should not be part of a judge's decision. Uh, and we have to be, and I've been dedicated in my career to root out implicit and explicit bias and, 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 and certainly anti-Black uh, uh, and uh, uh, racism uh, uh, you know, that, that it can be in our courts. Uh, so uh, I learned from my dad uh, being a lawyer uh, that character matters, you know, character matters. Uh, and I learned the values of integrity and hard work and that the purpose of the rule of law is to benefit people, uh, to particularly working people and marginalized people, because these are the people that are in the system uh, facing the brunt uh, of these challenges. So we need we need judges that are, uh, uh, you know, culturally competent, uh, sociologically cognitive and competent, and also disab uh, disability competency as well. Meaning people coming in with. Uh, substance abuse disorder challenges or behavioral challenges, mental health challenges, deserve to be treated with judicial empathy as well uh, and not uh, uh, stereotyped uh, and, and prejudged uh, before uh, the, the facts are in evidence. So that, that is what, what I'm, uh, the philosophy, you know, that, that I'm uh, uh, committed to. Now, in my career, it's always been a challenge. Just like in my dad's time, when he couldn't practice in common police court or, or uh, the fact that when he passed the bar, there were only three African-Americans in the whole state that, that practiced, uh, uh, that, that were allowed to uh, uh, pass the bar. In fact, uh, in Pennsylvania, over a period of 20 years, uh, only a handful of African-Americans passed the bar. Because back in my dad's time, when you went to take the bar, you had to produce a photo in your name. So it was very easy to discriminate Against black uh, uh, against black applicants. Uh, so what happened? The, the uh, when my dad left the DA's office, he went with a firm, Austin Norris. He was able; they were able to challenge these discriminatory practices. And now, people that take the bar, uh, there's no identification on any of the paperwork that's submitted. You're given a number. Your your photo isn't isn't produced. So all of that change happened uh, because people advocated for it. Uh, so to get change, you have to fight for it. You know, that, that's kind of the way life is. I, I know myself, even in my time, even though I'm where my dad couldn't be, in my dad's time, there were very few uh, diverse judges or juries. So when he tried cases, predominantly all white juries uh, in front of uh, all white judges, all, just about all of the time. Now there is some diversity uh, in, in our court system, not necessarily at the appellate level where I'm the only <laughs> judge among 31 judges on the Supreme Superior and Commonwealth Court, uh, but there is diversity. Uh, the, uh, the, the bench is starting to approach maybe 50% in terms of gender uh, diversity, in terms of women. It's, a, it's about equal between men and women, but in terms of race and nationality, we have a, we have a long way to go uh, in, in order to, to achieve diversity, even though as people of color were overrepresented in the system. And some of the challenges I faced, I remember being a young lawyer going into court, representing the city of Philadelphia and being stopped at the door of a courtroom and challenged to produce ID to prove that I was a lawyer. 
yet the white lawyers were just going right by into the courtroom and not being challenged. So I had to produce like a card to prove I, I worked at the city solicitor's office. Then he's like, well, wait here. He still wouldn't let me in. Then he goes to the judge. And once the judge is satisfied that I'm a lawyer, then I was allowed to, to enter the courtroom. Uh, so these kinds of behaviors uh, are, are not uh, necessarily relegated to the heroic period of the civil rights uh, period, which was in the 60s. These kind of th th these behaviors were, you know, in the early 2000s, where I'm being challenged uh, to prove that 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 I'm a lawyer because I'm a, I'm a black woman uh, in America. So th th these kinds of challenges are still real even today. Uh, uh, people, if I go places, people might not believe that I'm an appellate judge. I've, I've had that experience where people, what you know, they 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 couldn't comprehend, you know, that a black woman could be an appellate judge uh on 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 the uh, in that level of of the judiciary so you know we're still uh challenging you know we're still challenged as a society uh to to face this and just because i have a black robe doesn't make me any different uh than than anyone else uh i i still fa face the very same challenges i still live in my parents neighborhood uh in west philadelphia uh so i'm very much still here uh, dealing with the same fight in, in a lot of ways that, that my dad, my mom was a teacher, was a teacher in, in her time. So I grew up uh, with the belief, you know, that education, you hear all of the education I had. Well, the, 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 I guess for in, in my time, uh, that was like drilled into me that education uh, uh, and, and uh, trying to uh, achieve, uh, you know, knowledge was, was a way of, of, of advancing and, and breaking out of, of you know, the, the discrimination and, 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 and the practices. And to a certain level, that's true. But we still have to advocate and fight uh, in order to make those changes happen. And just because I'm on the bench, I have to fight. I have to fight in a different way. Uh, but, but my fight is with the rule of law and to ensure that equal justice for all is not just something we read about in school, but that the constitutional principles should live, need to live in my courtroom, whatever level of court I'm in. A, a, ju a judge's primary role, in my opinion, wherever a judge is in, in the system, whether a municipal court, common police court, superior or Supreme Court justice, that the constitution should live, that the principles of equal justice for all become a reality. We have to hold this country to its promise of equal justice for all. And, and that is uh, my, my mission and my commitment uh, as a judge is, is to make that a reality, not, not just something we read in school, but a real reality. Uh, and, and that's what I'm committed to uh, as a judge. So I don't wanna ramble on and on. I don't know if there are any questions or anyone wants to say anything. I don't wanna just ramble, um, but that's primarily uh, who I am, my background, um, my uh, judicial philosophy, uh, my commitment, uh, and uh, I'm always recruiting, recruiting future lawyers and judges right off of this call that, that, that one of you or some of you will pick up, the, pick up the banner and move on, you know, when I'm on somebody's beach somewhere, uh, uh, retired, that, uh, you know, somebody on this call will, will pick up the pick up the torch and, and bring the next generation of lawyers, be the next generation of lawyers, judges uh, uh, that we need to keep 
to keep things going, to keep the movement going. That's that's uh, my biggest hope is, is, is somebody on this call will be the next judge, justice uh, 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 to go, going forward. So does anybody have any questions, comments? Uh, I don't wanna just ramble aimlessly. So anybody have anything? Go ahead, they take, uh, take yourself off mute. Who wants to ask? Uh, oh, look, they have hands up everywhere. So go ahead. Who wants to... Go ahead, Julia. Um, <laughs> uh, you talked about like implicit bias and stuff. Uh, is there any implicit bias like training for judges? And in your opinion, is it like well-rounded and effective at all? Yes, there, there is implicit bias uh, training uh, uh, that is available. In fact, I participated in it uh, when I was in the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia. I was a Common Pleas Court judge uh, in, in criminal court before I was elected to the court, the Superior Court, the court I'm on now. Uh, and we did go through implicit bias uh, training. Uh, and I think the purpose of implicit bias, because all people have, it's not just one group of people that has it, all people have it. We have this unconscious you know, assumption about other people, particularly people that we may not have contact or exposure to. You know, we, have, we might have these ideas that you know, we might've seen through media or, 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 or other places. So it's not just one group of people that has it. So I think uh, when we had the training, some, of the some, some people might have felt they, you know, no one wants to be called a racist or, or, or anything like that. But once it's explained that, no, you're not being singled out, all people have this. So we, we, we have to work through this together because it's about awareness. Getting rid of implicit bias, you have to be aware because it's almost, it's, it's subconscious, you know, that you make these assumptions. Once it becomes to your, your awareness that, that you're doing this, then consciously you can stop yourself uh, from doing that uh, and seeing and making sure as a judge, it's, in, it's incredible, it's crucial that our decisions are not based on some kind of stereotyped assumption against someone uh, based on implicit bias. That, that's a problem. So we can't have any judicial decision being based on a bias. So we have to be aware of it uh, uh, and, and people are coming into the courtroom, you know, they might act a certain way and you're thinking, aha, see that, but see, you can't buy into any of that. You have to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, th that's where being trauma informed comes in. Why is the person behaving like that? You know, what is that? What's behind that? Uh, that we can understand uh, because many times it's not about the judge. It's not about me. They don't even see me. They see the black robe and I'm the system. They're railing against the system. And, and that's what uh, I represent as a judge. So it's not, not personal against me. Uh, instead of saying, well, every time these people get in front of me, this happens or, or, or some negative stereotype. You say, well, wait a minute. Let me look at this individual person. It's, it, it's, you know, we can't have that kind of stereotyping. And well, why is this person acting that way? Let's be more probing. Right, what are the issues here? What, what's going on? Uh, is, is, is there some behavioral issue? Is there some other substance issue? It's not because they're these people. That's where you have to catch yourself, catch your awareness. And that's what the implicit bias training does. It makes you aware of it so you can catch yourself and stop yourself from using any of that in any of your decisions. Because the decisions you make as a judge are life changing. 
You can change the tra trajectory of someone's life with a decision. So we can't have it based on some kind of stereotype bias against someone. Uh, we, we have to do everything that we can to fight that, to say, well, no, okay, this person reacted this way. And through probing, I find out, uh, you know, maybe they had a death in the family very recently or something else happened to a partner of theirs or a child is sick or uh, they lost a job or whatever it is. Uh, and when people see that you're going to probe a little bit different, that, then that calms them down. And, and you, you, you get to see the person as the human being and, and not, the, the purpose of implicit bias training is to get us to see people as human beings, as people, the way we all wanna be seen. Don't we all wanna be seen as people? Don't we all want that? So that's what the training does. So you're not stereotyping a person, you're seeing them as an individual person and, 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 and then you're able to make your judgment based on that. But, so that's why I think that kind of training. Now, some people will use other terms and say, well, no, cultural competency training or you know, whatever that umbrella is uh, to help a, a judge or criminal justice professional, police officer certainly making stops on the street that you're not profiling people just based on who they are instead of uh, what you should be doing and having the reasonable suspicion to stop and the probable cause to arrest, uh, not based on uh, you know, uh, you know, racial certainly profiling or any kind of profiling like that. So that's what the implicit bias or cultural bias or competency training does: is make us aware of, you know, maybe something we didn't know about ourselves, uh, and catch it and deal with it, and don't let it at all affect the decision. Uh, you know, sending one some someone to prison. Uh, and, and, and particularly people of color, particularly young black men, uh, are, are certain behaviors can be criminalized. It's how we label people or label behavior. Uh, maybe a generation ago, certain behavior, you know, people would have been sent home. You know, now uh, certain behavior, that same behavior, people are calling the police. Uh, and then you find young black men labeled as criminals and then they're in the juvenile system and then they're fine. So that's the kind of thing that with the stereotyping and labeling and criminalizing and even uh, adultification in some cases of, of, of young black people and people of color particularly, uh, you'll hear a language, well, she was much older, looked much older than you know, turning uh, 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 children into adults and, and labeling uh, behavior as, as criminal. And we've seen the differences. If you all have been watching on television, do you know the case of, of Browder, the young man uh, that was, uh, what was that, um, in New York, that horrible uh, prison. Uh, and he was held for, I think, three, four years for stealing a backpack. He couldn't bail out. And uh, he came out and, and, and he, I think he ended up committing suicide, if I remember. Uh, and then we see other people that arrested that invaded the capital and people are allowed to go home. One person went to vacation in Mexico. <laughs> uh, so when, when you see the, the, the disparities, uh, you know, that a Browder is incarcerated for four years pre-trial, pre-trial, it wasn't even convicted uh, for stealing a backpack. And you have other people that committed horrendous acts in, in attacking our democracy or allowed to go home or allowed to go to Mexico, allowed to leave the country. 
we see the kinds of biases and the different judgments and assumptions. Assumptions. Some people get assumptions of competency and assumptions, good assumptions, and then other groups of people get negative assumptions. And we see it unfolding right in front of us uh, when we look at how the criminal justice system treats certain classes of people and then how it treats other classes of people. I'm certainly not the first person certainly to point that out because uh, it's unfolding uh, right in front of us. So that's where implicit and certainly explicit bias uh, has to be rounded, rooted out. There were other hands, you said their hands all over? Yeah, go ahead, Gatry. So this is a little bit political, but what are your views on re-entry into the real world or working environment for people who have served some time in jail, perhaps say, for example, 10 years for a crime such as robbery, as in how would you decide your verdict for such a case and what would you want, what steps would you wanna take in terms of helping them seek employment and have you ever dealt with a case like that? Yes, well, I've been very involved in a positive reentry for returning citizens. Uh, where I am in Southwest Philly, there were a couple of programs. Uh, one was Turn a New Corner in which in, in certain, uh, you know, small shops, mainly black owned shops in West Philly, employers would actually come and, and people were invited that were returning citizens to apply for jobs right there in the community. And uh, people got jobs, uh, many of them in the community uh, 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 and they were able to, to get those jobs in spite of, you know, having you know, having a, 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 a criminal record. So I was involved with that. And then there was another program in Southwest Philly called Blades, Fades and Engage. And uh, this was an activity at barbershops, mainly black barbershops in West Philly. And there were different people, mainly that uh, worked in the criminal justice system, police officers, probation officers, you know, uh, myself, uh, people from the DA's office, as well as community people that would come and just listen to people that were, that were uh, involved in, in, the, uh, in the justice system to, to, to try to facilitate a, uh, to promote understanding uh, uh, with, with people that were justice involved and, and then trying to find out what is it that we can do better uh, to promote your success. Uh, because as a judge, and many people don't think of it this way, as a judge, you know, my goal should be if, if I'm putting somebody on probation, my goal should be that that probation should be successful. You know, we're not just putting people on, we shouldn't be just putting people on probation just to put them on probation, put people on probation just, just to do it. it. It should be with the goal of, of a person at the end of that time, either, either uh, reaching educational uh, goals, certainly employment goals, uh, they may be treatment goals, uh, uh, you, know, you know, there may be related to, uh, you know, parenting goals, but, but the, the, the purpose should be to set people up for success. Uh, so people don't come back. We don't, none of us gain anything by people coming, the recidivism, you know, coming back and, and, and coming back and forth, uh, helping people find jobs. Uh, and that was the whole idea of turning a new corner. And uh, surprisingly, there was uh, resistance uh, uh, from some people, well, that's not your job, you know, as a judge or as a police officer, that's not your job uh, to help people. But I disagree, that is our job. Uh, because the more we can help people to become successful, the less likely the person is to come back. 
into the system and, and, and the revolving door of, of coming in and out of the criminal justice system helps no one. You know, even the biggest public safety advocate uh, would have to agree uh, that if the more people, returning citizens are able to get on with their lives, uh, become productive, take care of their families, find housing, find job, the, the, the better it is for everyone. Uh, so I think collectively all of us, <coughs> you know, that are in the criminal justice system, we should be dedicated, you know, to that principle. How do we set this person up for success? Uh, what is it that we can do that, to, to help this person to be able to move their life forward? Uh, so they're not coming back and forth, violating probation, and then they're reincarcerated or picking up new charges, and then it goes on and on. So I think it's very, very important. I've been very involved with that, as well as uh, stopping the school to prison pipeline, you know, for our youth, you know, helping young people. I live in Southwest Philly in the Southwest uh, Police District, uh, and I'm also very active in uh, working with a group, and this is pre-COVID. We had a group of young people uh, that were identified as either likely to kill or be killed out here. Uh, so the point is to try to help people make different choices. You have to make your own choices. You know, we can't make your choices for you. I wish we could. Well, we, we all make choices. You know, I make choices too. And I'm held accountable for my choices that I make. Uh, so you want to help people to get as much exposure and information as they can to make positive choices in their life in their lives. But ultimately, it's up to that individual. And, and the more exposure uh, we found uh, with, with young people, different careers, different people doing everything. I mean, I graduated from Overbrook High, right, right in West Philly. I don't know if anybody on the call went to Overbrook High. Oh, yay. So, you know, people, I go back to my high school and I'm like, you can do this too. I'm not any special anything. Uh, you know, I just applied myself and you can do the same thing, but it's being exposed to people like me, other Overbrook graduates, done other things. You know, you don't, don't let people get in your ear and, and, and you, you know, pull you the wrong way. Uh, and every time I go back to the high school and I leave, someone comes to me. I remember a young, uh, I think she was almost, I think she was 18, getting ready to graduate, telling me about how uh, she was with a boyfriend and he had gun, uh, gun and drugs and they were stopped by police and, and he put the, put the gun and the drugs on her. Uh, uh, and now she's facing a very, very serious case, uh, you, you know, with a, with a weapon, weapons charge and, and drug charge. And unfortunately she's over 17 and three quarters. So here she is trying to graduate from high school facing adult felony charges at 18. So if she's found guilty of, of any of those charges, that's life changing. Uh, uh, you have a felony uh, on your record. Uh, you can't get certain federal student loans. You can't get federal, uh, certain federal business loans. It's life changing uh, at that young age. So uh, these kinds of choices of, 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 of people you associate with and things like that, are, are things uh, that, that, that you have to consider very, very carefully. Because if you make a bad choice, you can end up uh, in the criminal justice system uh, uh, because of a bad choice. Uh, so many times it's, it's not that the people are bad, the choices can be bad. 
and, and so we work with people and, and understand that uh, and not label the people. It's, it's the behavior uh, that we want to change. Okay, so I had a question um, regarding the idea that you talked about trauma-informed. So I've met a judge before, and he said that um, judges should be, like, they desensitize themselves and just take the case and just, um, what do I want to say? Like, they just put the law in, into play. So how does that work with being trauma-informed? Like, do they work hand in hand? Like, does desensitization like affect trauma-informed people? Like, how does that work? Well, I would disagree. Well, every judge has their own approach. And if that that's what that judge does, that's one approach. But I, I, I think I see what he's, he or she, I don't know, he, he or she was saying, desensitization. You don't want necessarily take it home with you and be overly empathetic. When I say judicial empathy or procedural justice or trauma-informed, you don't want to internalize too much. But what, what it's saying is being trauma-informed, you're not desensitizing. You're, you're looking at it and trying to understand where behavior is coming from. Uh, what is the source of behavior? Uh, what is it substance abuse problems, which, which many times it can be in a lot of cases, could it be a behavioral health? Is it a mental health uh, disorder? What, what is the source of, uh, of behavior? Uh, because then as a judge, it's, your, it's our job to figure out what is the best remedy for the behavior. If it's criminal behavior and we determine that it, it's, it's criminal behavior, we, the person is adjudicated uh, guilty for, for that behavior, the next step is to figure out, okay, what is the appropriate sentence that, which has a rehabilitative function as well as a punishment function as well. We have to look at safety considerations of the community. These are the multiple factors we have to look at. So the danger of becoming too desensitized uh, is that you remove yourself from the probing and the understanding of, of, of the genesis uh, of, of behavior, because it comes from something. You know, No one just does things out of a vacuum. Uh, uh, that's why when we have what's called pre-sentence reports, uh, you'll see the family history in the report. You'll see if, if they have a criminal history, criminal history in the, in the report, employment history in the report. So the whole idea of the pre-sentence report is to give a full picture or at least as much as is available of the person to kind of, to, for the judge can begin to understand where did this behavior come from? So you don't want to become numb uh, or, or, or so desensitized that you lose the respect of, or the humanity for a person. I mean, you just become an automaton. And as judges, we don't want to become an automaton. And the danger with that is you, you begin to lose the fact that I'm dealing with a person in front of me uh, and I, I have to always respect and understand the humanity of that person that's in front of me. So you don't want to get too desensitized or automatic with it uh, because that's how people end up uh, we end up with, you know, the disparities we often see uh, in sentencing, because as, as a judge, especially if you're in a high volume environment like Philadelphia, in your uh, 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 docket every day as a felony uh, major uh, trial judge, uh, you know, many are disposed of through pleas, you know, some you, you, you do jury trials, 
So you don't want to get to the point where, where you're just looking and it just becomes just one more case. Uh, and that's where the implicit bias can come in. Here comes another person, you know, they start to, people begin to look the same in your mind uh, and then you just go on automatic. Uh, and, and that's very dangerous in, in my opinion because then you lose the perspective. As judges, we're charged, each case needs to be evaluated individually. Uh, and, and if you get too much automatic or desensitized or uh, you, know, you, you just get rote, it becomes a rote function, uh, then you start to, to lose the impact, the understanding of the impact of, of, of what you're doing as a judge. Uh, so I would, I would mitigate, I would argue against being desensitized. I, I understand what that judge is saying. Uh, you don't want to internalize uh, too much of that because it can make you sick, you know, the things that you see. Uh, my last couple of years in uh, the Court of Common Pleas before I was elected to Superior Court, uh, most of my cases were uh, sexual cases against children, primarily children and women. So they were horrific cases. A nightmare case. Uh, I remember one, one stretch I did uh, about 21 to 25 uh, rape cases in a row, right after another involving children. So uh, it, it's very difficult, you know, what you have to deal with in those cases. So you don't want to internalize it to the point that it'll, it'll you know, make affect your health or, or, or something like that. So if that's what he's saying or she, I understand that, but you don't want to become desensitized to the point that you lose uh, the, the respect for the humanity of people on both all sides of the cases. Uh, you know, a person that's that's victimized, a person that is the accused, uh, you know, police officers, witnesses. A lot of people come in uh, to the courtroom: doctors, nurses, particularly if it involves. Uh, you know, sexual assault cases, psychologists, you know, different kinds of, 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 of people. Uh, so you don't want to get too desensitized that you lose your judicial empathy uh, uh, for the circumstances of, 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 uh, what, of, 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 of the individual cases. That's what I would say to that. So we talked earlier about how implicit bias can be prevented, but when biases do take place in the courtroom, how is this dealt with? Is there a protocol or a strategy you use? And has this changed your perspective on the American judicial judicial system? Oh, with, with cases involving explicit bias, uh, there was a case that was publicized and, and you all may or may not be familiar with it. A judge in Pittsburgh uh, conducted a jury trial. The person was found not guilty. Uh, the judge got upset about that actually and, and took the a prosecutor and defense attorney in the back uh, off the record and made horrific racial statements that, uh, to the prosecutor. I don't know why you had juror number, whatever the juror's number was, Aunt Jemima, referred to the juror's Aunt Jemima uh, uh, on, on the jury. And then he went through this whole thing about her baby daddy's in prison. I mean, this is what the judge was saying uh, 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 to, uh, to the two lawyers uh, in the courtroom. And it's it's well, it's been well publicized. And the prosecutor was so horrified that prosecutor reported the judge to, uh, there's a judicial conduct board, uh, just like there's a disciplinary board for attorney uh, misconduct, there's a judicial conduct board 
for judicial misconduct. And there's actually a court of judicial discipline where judges can be tried for uh, their misbehavior. Uh, it's important to understand that our Supreme Court has supervision over all lawyers and all judges in the entire state. And uh, through its boards, commissions, and committees, the Supreme Court uh, prescribes the rules of court, how courts should operate in criminal, civil, family, orphans court, juvenile court, as well as codes of conduct for judges and lawyers. So there is a remedy. And this particular judge ended up being removed uh, as a judge from the court, we're happy to report. Uh, for explicit uh, behavior. But what's shocking, I guess, is that the judge felt so comfortable in saying these things. Uh, and the public defender had reported for years about this particular judge and racial uh, 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 comments. And in, in one instance, I think the judge uh, got into sp speaking Ebonics in open court to, to black uh, litigants. I mean, all kinds of insulting behavior uh, racially explicit behavior that's been going on for many for years. Uh, so there is there is a remedy for for behavior uh, 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 re re uh, regarding judges as well as lawyers. Now that was a, a pretty pretty old, a pretty bad one, uh, but uh, judges can be reported uh, to the board of judicial conduct it's investigated, they'll determine if there's cause to go forward and uh, it can end up being tried in the court of uh, judicial uh, discipline. The only thing that stopped the trial was you know, the judge had to agree to uh, a step down uh, from his judicial office, which he did. Uh, so no one's above the law. That's what I would say. No one is above the law. Uh, I'm subject to the same scrutiny for my behavior. Uh, uh, all judges are. Uh, so that's a good thing. You, you, you don't want any, anyone behaving uh, any kind of way uh, with such important powers uh, at our disposal. So it's important to know that we are under uh, subject to judicial canons, rules of judicial conduct, as well as these bodies uh, that can investigate misbehavior. And then in the case of severe behavior, uh, can actually be tried uh, and removed from the bench if necessary. And then of course there's criminal conduct. Do you remember the kids for cash case? Does anybody remember that case, the kids for cash where uh, a judge, uh, was that Luzerne County? Uh, uh, no, it was one of the counties uh, uh, actually uh, had something worked out with, the, uh, he was a juvenile court judge and he had something worked out with a placement provider. And the judge was actually getting a cash kickback from, re from referring juvenile uh, offenders. He would, he would adjudicate them delinquent no matter what the facts said. And, and that person would be sent to this provider and the judge would get a financial payback. They would get a kickback. And this is a real case. Uh, uh, this is real. So uh, that kind of behavior was punished with criminal. The judge, I think was sentenced to 26 years. I forget what the exact sentence was. I know it was maybe 13 to 26 years in prison. So there are criminal sanctions, there are civil sanctions, there are ethics sanctions uh, for, for that kind of uh, certainly explicit behavior uh, uh, and certainly kickbacks and, and that kind of behavior because a lot of the, the people that were victimized as you can imagine were marginalized people, poor poor people and people, people of color, which many times they would find that they don't have the voices 
they don't have the, anything to fight back with uh, until it all came until it all came to light. Thank you for being here. Um, but I have two questions actually. One is we are talking a lot about desensitized judges. Um, has there been a case where you've actually encountered the opposite? where you felt that the um, prosecutor and defense wasn't being fair um, to the person who was being, um, who was on trial and is there anything that the judge can do? Remedy for that? Well, if, um, well, if you're saying being fair, uh, if, if <coughs> you know, there's some kind of misconduct, there's di di disciplinary board as well for attorneys if there's, if there's something like that going on. Now, if, if it's just that I disagree uh, with the way that a prosecutor is proceeding or, or maybe the way a defense attorney is handling a case, that's kind of a different thing. So it depends on the degrees. If, if, I, if I believe there's a misconduct, misconduct going on, I have the affirmative duty, I have the duty to report uh, behavior. Uh, if it's just a matter I disagree uh, with how the case is being presented, that's a very different thing. And we have to be careful as judges that when we're in front of a jury, we're not communicating that to the jury. <laughs> you know, the lawyers have to try their cases. Uh, so even though we, you know, we might, I might not approach it the way that lawyer is approaching it. Uh, if there's no misconduct or, 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 or anything going on like that, we have to let the lawyers try their cases. Now, there are rulings on objections. You know, if, if uh, something a lawyer tries to uh, evidentiary rulings wants to enter something into evidence, I can, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, if there's a motion to, uh, you know, uh, deny the admission of, of something into evidence. I can determine whether it's proper to admit something or whether it's not proper to admit something or a certain testimony, whether testimony can proceed or whether it can't proceed. So all through the trial, the judge, as a judge, I'll make decisions like that. Uh, you know, a lawyer may want to ask a certain question, and then I'm, I, I might uh, sustain, in other words, grant the objection to that questioning and stop the questioning uh, because I'll, I'll, you know, deem it irrelevant or, or some other evidentiary ground. Now, that happens all the time in a trial, and that's totally normal uh, for that to happen. Uh, so we have to look at, you know, kind of the, the range of, 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 of behavior and conduct of an attorney. Is it just that uh, I'm going to sustain an objection or, or, uh, or, or, or uh, disallow certain evidence in or disallow certain testimony to go in? Uh, that's sort of the normal business of trial. Um, if, if there are other factors in play, uh, uh, then as a judge, you know, I might have to, you know, approach it, you know, approach it differently if there's some kind of misconduct or misbehavior in, is in issues. Thank you, Judge Nichols. And my second question, which comes from another member of our PA Youth Vote team, Tasfia, uh, she asked, what is a case where that changed your perspective um, on how courts should be? Well, one case, uh, I had done a trial and it involved the sexual assault of a child and it was after the case. And I remember clearly, you know, I'm in the market, you know, shopping and at the counter and uh, a woman came up to me, are you a judge? And I said, yes, I'm, you know, I'm a judge. 
uh, Judge Nichols, she said, oh, she, she came up and she said, I could still see her. She said, uh, 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 my child was sexually assaulted and, and you conducted the jury trial and we got justice. And I just wanna thank you. And uh, I mean, to me that of everything I remember the hundreds of jury trials, that just really brought home to me uh, the humanity of these cases. Uh, you know, here's a mother uh, living, the, the, a mother's, a parent's worst nightmare. Uh, 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 their child was sexually assaulted and they had to go through the system and go through. Uh, and, and here she is in front of me. Uh, and it really it kind of helped shape the way I think now uh, about empathy and humanity. The human it, it breathes kind of the humanity into these cases. Because if you're doing case after case after case after case after case, you can become desensitized, as, as we've heard that someone mentioned. But when someone comes up to you and expresses the humanity of being a mother and, and, and that pain that she suffered with, with you know, the assault of her child. And as I remember, the child was like seven or eight years old, if I remember correctly. Uh, that kind of uh, humanity just really brought to my mind what we're involved in here. Uh, and that this is real, it makes it real, it made it real to me. And, and it made me double down on uh, really seeing the cases and it. They're, they're not just cases. Uh, they, 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 they're real people, they're real people, real suffering, real lives. And here she is in the market, you know, trying to get on with her life and shopping and, and, and doing uh, after, after this horrific uh, thing happened. Uh, so it did, uh, the way I looked at these cases and, and made me really come to grips with making sure that I never lose sight of the fact that we're dealing with people's lives here. Uh, and, and that this stuff is, it, it made it real. It's real, this is real. Uh, this is really real. Uh, so I think that case affected me uh, uh, probably deeper than anything I've seen, just seeing the mother outside of the courtroom. Beyond courts, what steps do you think like public schools could take in essentially just achieving equity among students in terms of civic education and inclusive dialogue? The, the, uh, what, that's another program I've been actively involved with, civic education. And one thing I did when I was in the courtroom, I worked with Bartram and I worked with Overbrook High and we would bring high school kids into the courtroom um, so that they could see, particularly sentencing, yeah, uh, to, to see where the rubber meets the road. If you're thinking, you're, you're thinking of doing something stupid, you don't want to do it because Sentencing is when the bill comes due uh, and, and you really see uh, what can happen. So uh, I think it's very important for uh, young people to understand how our courts work, understand voting, understand our system. So by the time you're ready to voting age, you already understand the three branches of government. You understand the difference between, you know, a committee person, a ward leader, a a councilman, a mayor, uh, what is a state rep, senator, uh, what is a US senator, Congress? What do all these offices mean? What do they do? What, what, is, the, what is the jurisdiction of a, a federal, you know, federal office, 
state office and, and municipal office. Yeah, I think all of that should be taught in school. What are the different levels of court? You know, municipal court, common pleas court, appellate courts. What is the role and jurisdiction of all of these judges? I, I believe strongly that all of us need to understand that even by the time you get out of high school, because then when you're 18 and you're voting age, you know who you understand what you're voting for. <laughs> you, you, you know, if you don't understand the difference between what a congressman does and what a council person does in city council, when you're voting, you really have no clue uh, what you're voting for uh, or why or, or, or uh, I worked in city council for a while. We would get calls from people all the time asking for us to do things that a state rep does or they have some, well, something's wrong with my social security or something. Well, you know, city council has no jurisdiction over social security. Yeah, that's federal. Oh, you know, and then people don't even understand the basics of where you know, of course, we would try to facilitate the person getting help. Obviously, we wouldn't just say, go your way, figure it out. We would try to say, facilitate that. But it, it always amazed me how little we know about our government. Uh, because people that are in government affect every aspect of our lives. I don't think there's anything you can touch uh, that is not affected by all these uh, levels, the levels of government, and certainly by a judge. You know, you buy a car, right? You rent a house. Um, even buying food in a store, you might say, well, I don't own a car, I don't own a house. Yeah, but you buy things, right? Uh, even, consumer products are, are, are subject to certain laws, you know, they're federal laws and they're state laws and, or, or even municipal laws. So we need to understand our different levels of government, uh, how they function. I, I'm with you 100% that civics should be mandatory, I believe, in our schools. Uh, that way you won't have so much voter apathy. Uh, because people get older and then they come to vote and then they're like, well, what's an appellate judge? I don't understand the difference between an appellate judge and then a trial, the, the common pleas. I don't know what common pleas is, municipal, not understanding the different levels of, of, of the judiciary and, and the different ju jurisdictions. So I think if people, if, uh, if, if students mastered, uh, uh, you know, the, the civics, uh, civics under, uh, in, in grade school and in, in high school, I guess high school would have to be where it would be. By the time you come out at 18, you're ready to vote. You know why you're voting. You know what, who you're voting. You, and then you do your homework on the specifics of the person, the candidate, but you understand the office that they're seeking. You know, uh, otherwise, if you don't understand what a city council person really does, and then we have you know, district council people in Philadelphia, council people at large, uh, what is the difference between these offices? You know, we need to understand all of this so that we can vote and make decisions intelligently. Uh, and then we go into a court and we understand, okay, this is a common police court judge. This is, this is a trial court judge. But if I'm not happy, I can appeal, <laughs> you know, to superior court or if, if I'm challenging a governmental agency, then I know I'm going to go to the Commonwealth Court. And then above that, there's the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And, but then there's a the federal system that's over here. I mean, we all need to understand how our systems work because we, we work for you. <laughs> you know, we, we're public servants. You know, we, we, we work for you. So we need to be held accountable, uh, understand what our role is, because that's how misunderstandings 
happen and people get disconnected uh, from our system a lot of times because it's people think don't understand what the real roles are and what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, and that's important as a base, I think, of understanding. So civics is, is the perfect, perfect place to start, I, I think, in public, in, in public school. I, I, I believe it should be. Thank you so much, Judge Nichols. We are at time, however, I know we did still have some remaining questions. So if you're available to stay on for a few more minutes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Anyone who has to go, please go. But Shayla, if you'd like to ask your question, um, go for it. Okay. Hi, Judge Nichols. Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, I was going to ask about private prisons and that role in sentencing. And like, have you seen any impact? Um, like, have you seen that on the statewide level or on the Supreme Court? Um, I think. The only private prison is in Delco, is in Delaware County, I believe the private prison in the state. Uh, so we don't have any in Philadelphia County. And I know there's been different challenges to it. I'm not sure where it is now because I know the county leadership has changed and there've been many, many challenges to uh, the, uh, the level of, of, of um, uh, of of the um, the circumstances, the you know medical care and different aspects of you know insufficient officers and you know, correctional officers and, and different aspects of problems. There have been many uh, uh, challenges to uh, the the, uh, the private. I think is that George Hill, I believe it is. Uh, that's a, that's a private prison in, in Delaware County, and I think that's the only one in the state. Uh, and of course, there have been challenges, many, many legal challenges to private prisons uh, that, that, that that should be something that shouldn't be delegated. Uh, uh, you know, so there's battling back and forth about the legality of, of private prisons and, and that, that they're problematic and dangerous, uh, not only to people that are incarcerated, but to people that work there, uh, you know, correctional officers and, and, and so on. So, uh, my understanding of there's been a lot of uh, challenges uh, to the way they're managed and the way uh, private prisons are operated. But to my knowledge, there's only one in the state and, and, and that's the only one I'm aware of. Uh, uh, and there've been a lot of challenges to it. Um, okay, so this is more of your opinion. Oh, can you hear me? Okay, do you think- Okay, go ahead. Oh, do you think a majority of the other judges that you worked with in the court system of Pennsylvania have the same ideals as you um, for like keeping like racial bias or other implicit biases out of the courts? Um, or is it something? Or is it something that you think needs like a lot more work than there should be? Well, I, I think it needs a lot of work. Um, there are. A, a, Quite a few, I, I, just from my own experience, uh, uh, of judges that that do want to work on those issues. I think it's first of all, you, you, you know, a person has to recognize a judge has to recognize that the problem exists, <laughs> and and there are just people in our system that work in our system that don't believe there's systemic racism, that don't believe that there's implicit and ex explicit bias. There was a court uh, study done in Philadelphia. Uh, found that uh, 
staff working in the criminal uh, justice system didn't believe uh, that there's systemic racism. So if, if people don't believe that there's a problem, uh, then they're not gonna be interested in working towards a solution. Uh, but, but there are, are people of goodwill who do believe uh, that there's a challenge, but then there may just be disagreement on, okay, what do we do about it? Uh, how do we remedy it? Uh, what's the appropriate, what are the appropriate steps we should take uh, uh, to confront uh, this, this challenge? So there might be divergent views uh, on that uh, of, of, okay, there's a problem, but what do we do about it? How do we approach it? Uh, and others that think there is no problem um, or, or think that the people raising the problem are the problem. <laughs> Uh, so unfortunately, there's 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 all of the, those views, and when you have a system as large as ours in 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 Pennsylvania, you know you're going to have people that there's not going to be groupthink. You know, people are going to vary in their views, agree, disagree. So a lot of times you'll see change maybe in one area of the state, but another part of the state uh, you won't see any movement, uh, depending on the leadership within a county. Because uh, they're president judges uh, in each of the counties, president judges of the, the common police court, president judges of the municipal court. So a certain president judge in an area might say, yes, we do need to make change and might be very progressive. And then you might have another in another area where uh, the president judge might not think, believe there's a need for change uh, and, and might not be as receptive uh, uh, to say uh, implicit bias uh, training or cultural competency or because that individual might think that that's not an issue. So um, that's kind of the challenge of getting uniform uh, a change in a state as large as, as ours because there's individual leadership uh, in the individual counties and it really varies from place to place depending on who is in charge. Uh, in, in, in those particular areas. Now there's some things that the Supreme Court can certainly mandate, but how it's implemented very much depends on the individual leadership within, within the county. All right, All right. Um, if, you do, if you do have questions that you think of later, please send them to Ms. Angie, Eric, Mr. Quinn and me, and we can send them along. But um, just like a, a silent round of applause, Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thank you, Judge Nichols, for talking to us about this very important part of the election cycle. Thank you to our listeners for listening in, and we hope you learned something new. Next week, stay tuned for an episode on AP exams and college admissions, acceptances, all the tea on that. This is Sahed signing off. See you guys next time.